Very good morning to you. If you'd like to grab your coffee, grab your donut. And if, if you've got a Bible, turn with me to Luke chapter 15. And this morning I want us to have a look at a, a, a parable. My name's Neil, by the way. I'm married to the wonderful Kate. We lead this church together. This morning I want us to have a look at a parable. It's a very famous parable. And it's a parable that, um, as you'll probably well know, is often called the parable of the prodigal son. But actually when you read it, it's, it's, it's actually the story of two sons. It's actually the story of a younger uh, brother. It's the story of an older brother. And I recently reread Tim Keller. Some of you will be familiar with Tim Keller. He leads a fantastic church in New York called uh, Redeemer. And I re- recently reread his excellent book on this parable. It's called The Prodigal God. And as I was rereading it, the Lord spoke to me again uh, through it. And just again really reminded me of kind of how radical this parable really is, even though it's familiar to many of us. And, and one of the things that I think Jesus is trying to get to through this story is how sometimes many of, uh, many of the thoughts, many of the sort of efforts, uh, the ways, if you like, in which we often try to connect with God or think that we're connecting with God are, are actually upside down and back to front. And this story that we're going to have a look at, it's in two parts. And the first part is this part about uh, a lost younger brother. And the second part of the story is about a lost older brother. And the, the thing that's really interesting uh, about this is that both brothers are actually lost. So uh, let's just take a look at this story and then let's see uh, if we can draw out at least some of the things that I think Jesus is trying to tell us. And we're going to start in um, chapter 15. We're going to start in chapter 15, verses 1 and 2, and then we're going to move down to verse um, 11. Now the tax, Luke chapter 15, verse 1. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around Jesus to hear him, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, oh, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Go down to verse 11. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had and set off for a distant country and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he'd spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him off to his fields to feed pigs. And he longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am, starving to death. I know. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still 
a long way off. His father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. Son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and I've sinned against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked, what's going on? Your brother's come, the servant replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he's come back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go into the feast, and so his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never even gave me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you're always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So, whole story opens to this um, younger brother. He's coming to his father, and he says in verse 12, he says, Father, give me, uh, give me my share of the estate. Now, the original hearers, we've got to kind of put ourselves in this first century context, the original hearers would have heard this, uh, and they would have been absolutely astounded, absolutely astonished that such a request would ever be made. Back then, if you had two sons, what would have happened normally when you died, your estate would have been divided, and it would have gone two-thirds to the eldest child, uh, eldest son and um, a third to the younger. And the reason for that was that traditionally it was the oldest son uh, who would get a double portion of what any of the other uh, offspring, any other children got. And so if there were only two sons, as there were in this case, um, the older would have got two-thirds. The younger would have got a third. But all of that would have happened when the father died. And so when this young, younger son comes to his father and says, you know, father, give me my share of the estate, my inheritance now, the people who are listening would have been astounded. One of the early commentators writing about this, he says, uh, what this is like, he says, to ask for an inheritance while the father is still alive is in essence to wish the father dead. What the younger son is saying basically is, Dad, I want your stuff. I want the things that you can give me, but I don't, I don't really want you. I'm not really that bothered whether you're alive or whether you're dead. I'm not really bothered. I just want what you can give me. Effectively, his relationship with his father is a, is a means to an end. Um, and he's kind of saying, I'm tired of it. I've had enough of it. I just, I just, just let me have the things that you effectively, that you owe me now. I, wanna, I, would, I, I just want to cash, cash it. And it, it would have been unheard of. It was an unthinkable request. 
But even more unimaginable to the listeners would have been what happens at the end of verse 12. Because even more unimaginable was the father's response to this terribly insulting request this young guy has made. And um, what happens is the, the, the father says, so he divided his estate. And the commentators on this, they say, you know, a traditional Middle Eastern father, a traditional Middle Eastern patriarch, this is who this guy is, he's, he's a wealthy man. Um, the only way that he should have responded to such an insulting request, uh, he would have been expected to have cut off the boy, cut the boy off, and thrown him out, and thrown him out with, you know, verbal and physical kind of blows. You know what I mean? He would have expected, he would have been expected to pummel the son, and then fling him out and not speak to him and have anything to do with him again. But the father doesn't do that. This father doesn't do that. Verse 12, it just says, so he divided his property between them. And the translation here, we get the word property. It's actually from the Greek word bios, which is where we get biology. It's It's actually about life. What it's saying is he shared his life between them. That's effectively what the father's done. And here's this younger son, and he's gone to his father, and he's literally asking the father to to tear his life apart. That's the the resultant effect of this request. Um, Because the father is going to have to sell his land. He's certainly going to have to sell a portion of his land in order to um, deal out the estate, to portion out the estate. He's going to have to sell... Uh, some of his uh, property, and, and therefore is literally tearing himself apart because certainly in the first century here, your livelihood and the ground, the earth, the land, they're just inextricably linked. And so you can't separate these things. They're just not a commodity. It was about his status, his standing in the community. Um, it, it was his livelihood. It was his life. And the son is basically saying, Tear your life apart and give me some of your life. And um, so the, those listening could, wouldn't have ever understood how a son could speak to his father like that. But they'd also never have understood how a father could have responded to his son in such a way. And so even though this young son has rejected his father's love, has rejected all that the father's given him, his father doesn't kick him out. His father doesn't cut him off. His father endures this, the agony of being rejected by his son. And, and the son goes off in verse 13, and as we know, what he does is he soon squanders everything that he, that he has. He blows it all, and by verses 14, 15, and 16, he's literally down in the mud. He's in a pigsty. The you know, ultimate insult is a Jew, and so having to feed the pigs and be with the pigs is just, just a fundamental low of the, the low for him. And, and he's there, and he realizes how stupid he's been, and he comes up with this genius plan. And so in verse 17, his plan is, I know, I'm going to go home. I'm going to throw myself on the mercy of my father. And and, and actually, um, just to convince him, I think it's a good idea if I go back with like an idea of how I might repay some of the debt. And so I I probably can't work the whole lot off. But I'll say to him, well, dad, I could, you know, I'd come and work for you on the farm and and maybe repay you in, in that way. And so that's his plan. And then in one of the most incredibly moving, heart-wrenching, heart-rending passages of Scripture, the 
the Bible says in um, verse 20, it says this, it says, but while he was still a long way off, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and had compassion on him. He was filled with compassion for him, and he ran to his son and throws his arms around his neck and kisses him. While he's still a long way off, the boy is still like down the road. Yet the father sees him, and the father's filled with compassion for him, and the father runs to his son. The father runs to his son. Now, Middle Eastern patriarchs didn't run. They just didn't run. You know, children ran, youths ran, women ran, okay? Fathers don't run. Wealthy landowners, they don't, they don't run. Owners of estates, they don't run. You, you know, you'd have to pick up your robes, right? And then you bare your legs. Just far too undignified. So fathers wouldn't have done that. But this one... He grabs his ropes and he legs, he runs. He runs to his son. His absolute abandon, his, uh, his, just his whole demeanor, the way he behaves is so unusual for a father at this time. And there's this emotional abandon. There's this, he's literally running towards the son and, and he's filled with compassion. His heart's breaking and broken and he throws his arms around the son's neck, kisses him. And the son tries to give his long-prepared speech, you know, Father, I've sinned against heaven, I've been sinned against you, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. He's been rehearsing that all the way from wherever he's come from. And, you know, and the father's not even listening. The father's not even listening because the father's just going to the servants, quick, 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 bring, bring the best robe. And the best robe, who owned the best robe? The father. The father's saying, go and get my best robe and put it on my son, and the, what the father's doing here, you know, the, the son's going for, you know, sinned against heaven, sinned against you. Hey, shush, don't even bother. I'm not even interested. You know, in spite of everything that's happened, in spite of everything you've done, I'm not going to wait for you to clean up. You stink, by the way. You've been, you've been with pigs. Like, you're really rank. Oh, it doesn't matter. You know, I'm not going to wait for you to have a bath. I'm just going to hug and kiss you. All right? I'm certainly not going to hang around waiting for you to justify and prove yourself and, and, and come out with some spiel about blah, 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 blah. He says, he says to his servants, basically, go and, and cover my son's nakedness and his rags with my finest robes. Uh, go and get the robe that demonstrates my, my role and, and, and my, my office and my honor. Get, the, get one of my best rings and put that on his finger and get sandals on his feet. His feet are a real mess. And, and let's have a party. Let's have a party. Let's celebrate. He's saying to the son, you're my son. You don't have to work your way back into the family. You don't, you don't have to earn your way back into the family. I, the father, I'm bringing you home. I'm bringing you in. But in verse 25, when the, when the brother, the older brother, hears about all of this, he's furious. He's like properly mad. And one of the things that he's really put out by and he's really cross about He's, he's cross about the extravagance and the cost of it all. Do you notice there's this like really big deal about this calf? Like this calf thing like, causes a bit of problem. The elder brother says to the servants in verse 26, you know, what's going on? 
hello, what's going on? I've been out in the fields, and I come in, there's like all this din in the barn. And um, one of the servants says, oh, you know, your brother's back. Isn't it awesome? It's great. And your dad's giving him the, the fattened calf. We're going to have a party. And, you know, the, the older brother goes to the father and basically says, you gave him the calf? And we're going, there's a big deal about the calf. You know, bit of veal seems to be a problem. Um, I don't know why that might be, but I think it's quite important to the story. I don't really get it. Um, Verse 29, the older brother says, you never even gave me a goat, and he gets the calf. And in Middle Eastern times, um, you almost never had meat for a meal. Meat was like a real delicacy. And, um, and you would have had meat if you had a party, certainly, um, but really only at parties. And the greatest delicacy, the most expensive, the most lavish meat that you would have, the most lavish sacrifice that you would make, would be to sacrifice a fattened calf. And what the older brother is saying to the father is, how dare you, how dare you, when he says, look, I mean, he's not, there's a little bit of impertinence in the way that the older brother speaks to the father. How dare you use our wealth like this? He says in verse 29, I've obeyed you all this time. I've been slaving for you. Well, you know, I stayed at home while he went off backpacking around Thailand, you know, I, I should have a, stay, a say in this. I should have, have a say in this. How dare you do this? And he, and he insults the father by refusing to go to the feast. What's happening here is both sons are, tro- are showing their true selves. Both sons are showing what's in their heart towards the father. The younger one, the younger brother's made it clear that he doesn't really love the father. He just wants his stuff. So he can go backpacking around Thailand, which is why he goes off. And now the other brother, the older brother, is doing exactly the same thing, just in a different way. Because he's angry at the father for the way that the father is using the stuff. He thinks he's wasting it. He thinks he's being profligate. And so he refuses to come into the feast. I'm going to snub you all. And so here we are, and we're listening to the story. We're hanging around Jesus, and we're hanging on his every word. We find ourselves on the edge of our seats because it's like an episode of EastEnders, you know. It's it's like, how's it all going to end? (gasps) What happens, you know? What what happens to the older brother? What happens to the younger brother? And and Jesus just ends the parable, just ends it. You know, it's like the original kind of last season episode of Dallas. Was it all a dream? You don't know what I'm talking about. (laughs) Anyway. Okay. Yeah, I love that. Anyway, back in the day. Um, it's a cliffhanger. What's Jesus trying to get across? Okay. I think Jesus is trying to tell us three things, at least three things, and they're all pretty radical. And what Jesus is doing through this parable, through this story is, first of all, he's redefining God, and then he's redefining sin, and then he's redefining salvation. Redefining God. A lot of us, a lot of people, a lot of us, a lot of people that we meet when we're trying, talking to them about our faith or talking about God, a lot of people struggle with this idea that God, the God of the Bible, is, this, is, a, father, is a father. And yet every single time Jesus talks to God in the Bible, apart from one, one occasion, I think, every single time Jesus talks to God, In the scriptures, he calls him father. And here, 
in the story, Jesus is defining what he means, I think, by father. You see, we struggle with the idea of, of God as father. Um, sometimes that's because lots of people haven't had good role models on earth as well. We haven't had good earthly fathers. And so we can't quite see, and so we project our experience of our own natural fathers onto uh, God, or maybe we see the whole idea of God as father as being too patriarchal, and, and we say, you know, well, fathers, they're harsh, and they're, they're, they're hard, and they're condemning, uh, they like rules, they make rules, they like to control, um, they say no a lot, you know, I don't want a God like that. I don't want a God that's like that. I don't want a God of rules and regulations and, you know, kind of wagging fingers. I want a God who's loving and a God who's um, forgiving. I want a God who, who longs for reconciliation or a God who longs for a relationship. You see what Jesus is saying here? Because what Jesus is doing is Jesus is giving us a father that's unlike any father of our time. Certainly this father's unlike any father of his time. You see it through his emotional abandon. You see it through his generosity, his willingness to um, share up and divide up the state, his willingness to uh, just get past the agony of his son's rejection of him as a father. And, And what Jesus is saying is if you've had fathers, you may have had a father who was like this. But let me show you my father who's like this. And God, for all his power and majesty, um, a heavenly father is, is all of these things that we see in this parable too. He's loving, he's suffering, he's longing for um, our love. And he loves, he loves you. Jesus is saying, my father is like the father in this parable and, and so much more. So Jesus redefines the concept of God just through this um, parable. And then secondly, Jesus redefines um, sin. What Jesus does in the first part of the story is he paints this picture of sin that's really, um, that's very traditional. It's the way we would, most of us would understand uh, sin. You know, any Pharisee, any religious person, anybody really, would have looked at what the younger brother was up to, you know, all of his antics, uh, what he did, and we would have said, yep, that's sin. Naughty the younger brother's a naughty boy. Okay? He's your classic naughty boy. He's, he's hanging out with prostitutes. He insults his father. He's completely self-obsessed. He's self-indulgent. You, you know, anyone sitting looking at him would have gone, yep, that's classic contemporary run-of-the-mill sin. We recognize it. I can spot it a mile away. But then in the second part of the story, Jesus turns the table. And, and by the end of the story, we are left with two sons. Um, one is very, very bad, the younger one. One is very, very naughty, right? And the other is very, very good. And yet what Jesus does is Jesus says that both of these guys, this one over here who's really, really naughty, and this guy over here who's really, really good, Both have sinned. Both have fallen short of the glory of God. Both of them have got it spectacularly wrong. Both of them are separated from the heart of the Father. 
And the younger brother's gone off and done his thing. He's separated himself from the heart of the father that way. And now the older brother, he's refusing to come into the feast. He's refusing to submit and surrender himself to the father. He, um, he, he, he's choosing again to separate himself from the heart of the father. And, and what lies behind both of their actions, both of their choices, both of the decisions that they make, is fundamentally neither of the sons actually love the father. Neither of the sons really loved the father. They both, both of them wanted what he had. Both of them wanted what he could give them. But neither of them actually wanted him. They loved the status that he afforded them. They loved the wealth that he could provide them. They loved the things that he would dole out. And, and they were the things that both of these guys were after. And one of them tried to get it all by being very, very bad. And one of them tried to get it all by being very, very good. But they both missed the thing that really matters. They both really missed the point. And both of them are equally lost. The bad one's lost in his badness. The good one is lost in his goodness. And, and in the end, though we don't really know what happens at the end, it would appear that the, the, the bad son, the, the naughty one, that he is actually saved. And the good son, he actually might be lost. And it kind of gets worse, because when we see why it was that the good son might have been lost, he wasn't lost in spite of his goodness. He was, he was probably going to be lost because of it. He says it himself. He says in verse 28 and 29, he says, like, this is the reason I'm not going to the feast. This is the stuff that's been brewing up in me for years, and now I've finally got an opportunity to let you know. He goes, um, this is basically the reason I reject you as my father. And he goes, look. I've been slaving for you for years. I've never disobeyed you. And what he's saying is, I've always done what you wanted. I've never put a foot wrong. I've always done the right thing. That's what he's saying. And then comes the killer line. Because essentially what he's saying is, and you owe me. It's not his way with living, it's not his rebelliousness, it's not prostitutes and partying that's keeping him from the Father. It's his goodness. It's his, it's his self-righteousness. And the reason that we started with the first two verses in Luke chapter 15 is because um, what it does is it tells us that there were two types of people around Jesus at the time that he's telling the story. There are two groups when he told this parable. And so first of all, you've got the tax collectors and the sinners. Yeah, remember those? And then there were the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. And all of a sudden, you start to put it all into place, and you begin to realize um, who these people in the parable actually are. And so the tax collectors and the sinners, you know, they're your classic younger brothers, your classic younger brother types. You know, they've run off. They're doing their own thing. They're living life any way and anyhow they want. But the Pharisees, the religious teachers, the religious people, they're the older brother. 
And so what we're seeing is two ways in which we try to make sense of the world. We try to make ourselves right, either with ourselves or with God. Uh, and we do it either by doing um, everything as we should, like the religious leaders, the Pharisees, through moral conformity. I, would, I must do everything. I must obey. I will do everything right. I will conform. Or we're footloose and fancy free, and we do exactly what we want. It's like, I'm going to do whatever I want. It's kind of this self-discovery uh, journey, the self, self, basically. And Jesus is saying, you're both wrong. You're both wrong. You're both lost. And this is how Jesus redefines sin. Jesus is saying that sin has got nothing whatsoever to do with whether you're very, very good or if you're very, very bad. It's all to do what's going on in your heart. The sin, Jesus is saying, is not just about the way that you choose to behave, what the outward expression of all of this is. You know, the things that you choose to do or not to do. The sin is the why you choose to do them in the first place. The sin Jesus is driving at here is not loving the Father for who he is. The sin is just loving the Father for what you can get out of him. What you can get. The sin is not wanting the Father for who he is. And what Jesus is saying is that younger brothers, they do what they want to get what they want. They demand their inheritance now so that they can go off and do as they please. And Jesus is saying that older brothers, um, they do what they want. They, to get what they want, they just go about it differently. They seemingly do all the right things. They obey, they work hard, they serve hard, they stay home. But all the while, the motive is the same, and, and it eventually spills out into a you owe me. And in the church, between the two, younger brothers and older brothers, we would want for more younger brothers in our midst, but we may have more older brothers in our midst. It's one of the things that just by being around the church, by being just around for a while, we need to ask the Spirit of God to show us what's going on in our hearts, you know, and, um, and be prepared to recognize. It's one of the things the Lord's been showing me is a lot of older brother in me, you know, and, um, and I just need to put that at the foot of the cross and say, Lord, I'm sorry. The sin is not wanting to get more of the Father. It's just to get more of his stuff. And, and both brothers are lost in their sin, the, the sin of not wanting the Father. You see, because gospel people obey God to get God. Right? That's the crux of it. Gospel people obey the Father because we, we want to resemble him. We want to love him, to know him, to delight in him. Religion, right, which Jesus hated, Religion, not faith, religion, religion operates on the principle that um, I obey, you know, I'm going to do everything right, I'm going to do my duty, dib, 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 and because I obey, I'm accepted. I've been doing everything right, so God has to accept me. That's the root of religion. The gospel operates on a completely different level, and the gospel operates on the thing of, I am accepted, <laughs> I don't know why, I don't know how, I don't know why God would accept me, but I'm accepted for who I am because of the work that Jesus has done on the cross. 
And because I'm accepted, you know what? I, I have no other choice but to obey. It all comes down to motivation. Neither brother does what they do out of love for the Father. Both brothers do um, what they want to do for themselves. What Jesus is saying, that's their sin. It's not just their behavior. It's not just their actions. We get hung up about the external manifestations of all this stuff, and it, it doesn't really matter. What, what we're interested, we should really be interested in what's going on in the heart and what's going on behind. And then lastly, uh, Jesus also redefines salvation. So Jesus doesn't just re- redefine God. He doesn't just redefine sin. He redefines salvation. And there are just two things I quickly want to highlight. Um, if we want to experience salvation... The first thing that we really need to experience and encounter is the initiating love of the Father. See, the Father goes out to both brothers. Do you see that? He goes out to both brothers in order to bring them in. He, he goes out to both sons. He goes out to the younger brother. But while he was still a long way off, he saw his son. His heart was filled with compassion. He ran to him. Right? He goes out to the younger brother and he kisses him before the younger brother repents. It's not, you know, the son's repentance that triggers the kiss. It's the father's kiss that facilitates the repentance. But the father also goes out to the older brother. Verse 28, the older brother becomes angry and refuses to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. Pleaded with him. And then look down to verse 31 where the father says, My son, the father says, You're always with me and everything I have is yours. My son, some translations have this as my child. In spite of the way that the older brother has 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 spoken to the father, the way he's treated the father, in spite of his refusal to come into the feast, still the father reaches out in this incredibly tender way and says, my son, my child, everything I have is yours. The, The initiating love of the father. It's the first step of salvation, us experiencing being saved and redeemed and rescued. And then secondly, we need to... second thing that Jesus is talking about here is that we need to be melted and moved by what it cost to bring us home. We have to see the cost that was paid, the price that was paid for us to come home. We have to see what God has done in order for us to come home. Have a look at the very end where the Father says, everything I have is yours. In verse 31, I think. And that's literally, that's literally the truth. He's saying, the father's saying to the older son, everything I have is yours. And that's absolutely the case. And why is that the case? It's the case because the younger brother has liquidated. The younger brother has now spent every last bit of his inheritance. And so remember what we said about how estates are divided up. Every single thing that the father had now belonged to the older brother because he's divided up the estate. The younger brother's blown his. The older brother owns everything. Every robe, every ring, every sandal, every calf. It all belongs to the older brother. And so the younger brother can only be brought back into the family at enormous cost and expense to who? The older brother. He's the guy, he's the one who's going to have to pay. It's the older brother who's going to have to pay the price for his younger brother's waywardness and randomness actions. It's not free. It's not simple to be saved. It's not simple to be redeemed. 
There is a price that has to be paid. Someone has to pay the price. And it's expensive. And in this story, it's the older brother who has to pay. And he is furious about it. He's livid. He's incandescent with rage. Why is it that Jesus put such a mean-spirited older brother into the story? I think partly it's to show the Pharisees what they look like from the outside. What would a true older brother have done? A true older brother would have seen the anguish and the agony of the father and would have said, Father, I'm going to go out and I'm going to look for my brother Uh, And if he's ruined himself, and if he's squandered his inheritance, it doesn't matter what mess he's in, I'll bring him home, even if it costs me everything I have. I'll get him back. I'll bring him back. I'll bring him home. That is what a true older brother would have done. But the younger brother in the parable doesn't doesn't have a true older brother. But we do. We do. Jesus is showing us what a bad older brother is like so that we will long and yearn for the right one. And we don't just need an older brother who's going to go out into the next city to find us from our wandering. We need one who'll come from heaven to earth to rescue, to rescue us and bring us home. We don't need an older brother who brings us into God's family just at the cost of his wallet. We need an older brother who's going to bring us back into God's family at the cost of his life. And that's what Jesus did. He went out. He left, set aside his majesty, and came to, from heaven to earth to rescue us. He didn't consider the equality with God something to be grasped. And he gave his life for every single one of us on a cross That was the price that he paid to get us back. And on the cross, Jesus was stripped naked so that every single one of us could be clothed to cover our nakedness and our rags and the stench of feeding pigs and living with pigs for the years that we've been living with pigs. And Jesus dies on the cross naked so that we can be wrapped in a robe of righteousness that we don't deserve. On the cross, Jesus cries out. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's the only time he doesn't call him father. It's because he's not being treated as a son. He wasn't treated as a son on the cross so that you and I could be treated as sons and daughters of the living God. It was on the cross that Jesus paid the debt that deep down we all know that we owe. We all know someone needs to pay for the stuff that we've done. And because Jesus had everything at his disposal, everything that the Father had, the Father had bestowed upon him. The Father had given it to Jesus. And so Jesus spent every single bit of it to bring us home. And it cost him his life. And when we see that, when we get in touch with that, and the degree to which we see that, it absolutely changes our motivation. It absolutely changes our hearts and our whole approach towards God is changed. As we see our Heavenly Father who sees us while we are still, while we are yet a long way off, He sees us. Our Father in Heaven sees us and He is filled with compassion for us. 
and he runs through the person of Jesus from heaven to earth to meet us. And he throws his arms around us and he kisses us. As we experience that initiation of the Father, the sacrifice of Jesus, it melts our hearts. Our hearts change, we're transformed. And as we allow our hearts to be melted by what our true older brother has done for us, clothing us in robes of righteousness, giving us his seal of authority in a ring, and laying down his life as the sacrifice, so that we can all be welcomed at the feast, and the feast is a picture of heaven. So we can be welcomed at the banquet. We can, we can go to the banquet. That's when our hearts change, and, and that's when our lives are changed forever with them. Why don't you stand?